You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, church. Uh, My name is Robert. I serve with uh, my wife, Heather, and our two kids. Uh, Today I'll be reading Ephesians 6, uh, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Well, good morning. Um, I am not Tanner. My name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors at Redeemer San Angelo, um, just one of our network churches, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. We launched uh, eight months after you guys did, and so um, it's just really cool to, for, for Tanner and I to kind of be on these parallel tracks and being able to spend a lot of time together. Um, Thank you uh, for welcoming me and my family, and, and we were able to, to bring some of our church members with us, and uh, we're just grateful to be gathering with you this morning to celebrate Jesus, uh, to celebrate the gospel. Um, one thing that, as I was thinking about coming throughout the week, it was just, it was just uh, helpful for me to look beyond just our tiny little bubble in San Angelo and see the greater work that the Lord is doing in West Texas and, and knowing that he's doing it throughout um, Texas through our network. Um, as you guys have been walking through Ephesians, you've been learning um, really this main message of Ephesians, how the gospel uh, transforms us, right? Um, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church and to some other churches about clarity in the gospel and what the gospel is, but then also how it applies to every part of our life. And so you've been learning how um, the gospel applies to your speech, to your relationships, how it applies to your togetherness and your unity as a church body. And today we're going to look specifically at how uh, the gospel transforms our work life. And so I want to just give you my main thought, this, this um, one sentence to contemplate. Hopefully you kind of take this with you through the week, but here's what we'll think about. As we grow in Jesus, our work preaches Jesus. As we grow in Jesus, our work preaches Jesus. So um, a little context for me, I'm curious what kind of things you all do. Can, does anybody, is anybody willing to share what you do for work? Teacher. Teacher? Also teacher. Teachers, lots of teachers. Any middle school? For any of you? Yes? Man, middle school teaching is like the book of Judges come alive, like <laughs> just bloodshed and failure. I taught middle school for four years, so <laughs> I can relate to that a lot. Um, anybody else? Health care. I know we have at least a pastor in the room. 
Does anybody work at home? Yeah. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said in much more eloquent terms, but homemaker is the career that makes every other career possible. Yeah. Anybody else? Kids, do you guys work? Uh, no. No? <laughs> do you clean up after yourself? Not a lot. <laughs> a, little, a little vulnerability there. That's all right. You guys probably do some work, right? Doing a little bit of schoolwork, homework, mowing lawns. Yep, that's right. So we all have a relationship to work. So it's important for us to contemplate that thought, to reflect on that thought. As we grow in Jesus, our work preaches Jesus throughout the variety of jobs that are represented in this room and beyond. So uh, let me ask you a question. What does God intend for your work? Why does he have you work? Why does he have broken, needy, weak people work? And why does he call us to work in such a way that it preaches the gospel? You don't have to answer that one out loud. Um, why do some of us work very hard jobs in very difficult environments? In Ephesians 4, uh, we learn that the, the, the job of Tanner and the elders and the pastors of the, the church, um, their job is not ministry. Their job is to equip you for ministry. They're not the ministers. You're the ministers. You are the ones in ministry. Um, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, he explains this a little bit more. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20, um, the, the, the first few verses of this section say that we have been reconciled. We have brought back to God in Christ, right? This is the gospel that Jesus reconciles us to the Father in 2 Corinthians 5.19, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So now we, in our work and in our relationships, and as we go about in the world, we now are making an appeal on God's behalf to the world. That through our transformation and healing, the world would know where to find transformation and healing. As we grow in Jesus, our work preaches Jesus. So <clears throat> I want to pause for a second. I want, I want to be very clear because um, if you do even just a little bit of research so much as like looking down at the very bottom of the page, you'll notice that in uh, verse 5, the ESV uses... Um, the word bondservants. And other translations will use different terms. The literal word that Paul is using in verse 5 is slaves. And so I want to clarify a couple things because the, the, the connotation of slavery in Rome, in ancient Rome, was very different to our understandings and our connotations of slavery from early American chattel slavery. 
Okay? And this is important because what we don't see is Paul condemning slavery, and we, wa- we want to ask the question, why not? That's an important question. That's not a question that's being answered in this passage. But I want to draw these lines of distinction because the, the reason the ESV chooses bondservants is pretty clear. I'll get to that in a second. Some of the primary differences of ancient Roman slavery was, one, slavery then was not a class. There was no singular group of people that had been chosen to be slaves. These were people who oftentimes made the choice to enter into slavery, either to pay off a debt or maybe even to acquire some relationships, to network, to um, give a portion of their life to a career so that eventually they would be free from slavery, and now they'd have all these connections and experiences that would propel them into their socioeconomic status that they'd want. So that's one difference. Another difference, or another way that uh, slaves um, became slaves was whether they were born into a, a family of slavery or maybe they were prisoners of war. Rome, as they grew their empire and conquered nations, um, would oftentimes enslave those who they were coming in as a way to, to kind of force them into Roman culture. Um, the ethical conditions of slavery in ancient Rome were very different as well. Um, many of the philosophers in Rome actually made this official statement that slaves are people and they have souls. And this was not something that was recognized or even made an official statement in early America. Exactly. And so I hope that we're painting this picture of when Paul addresses slaves, he's not addressing maybe what we have these background connotations of. Now, the, the two primary differences I want to talk about, or I want, to, I want to pull out of this, is that one, freedom was always possible. Freedom was the end goal of slavery. That was not so in early American slavery. And two, slaves were considered people. So considering these big differences between then and now, it's important to see that the word bond servants is being used not to whitewash Scripture, but to give us a better understanding and a better connotation of who Paul is talking to. Who he's talking to is employees, workers, and their bosses, managers, people who are entrusted with the work and people who are entrusted with people. Okay? And so now that we have that, that understanding um, wrapped around our minds, let's continue working through our text. Uh, I want to come back to this context that we've talked about that you guys have been clarifying the gospel, and you've been understanding how the gospel applies then to your whole life. Well, um, I like definitions. Uh, Sometimes there can be some confusion as to what I mean when I say a word, as to what your pastor means when he says a word. So we're just going to spell it out. Here's what the gospel is. And I'm going to reference Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I have another uh, long uh, quote that I want to use later, but there's a, a reference to it, uh, and I'm going to sum it up, kind of paraphrase it. On our own, we're dead, right? Meaning we love sin. We love to follow after our desires. And the fact that we love to follow after our desires and say yes to ourselves 
more than we say no to ourselves. This means that our souls are dead. Loving sin kills our souls, and it will eventually kill our bodies. It kills our relationships. It kills our minds. So when we follow in our own way in sin, we are dead. There is no way for us to bring ourselves back to life because we love sin. And this is true for all of us. Paul's not writing this to say, hey, you guys in Ephesus or you Gentiles who are not part of Israel. Paul's saying, no, this is true for everyone. And so this is kind of the leveling the playing field here in this room that we're all beginning on the same platform. On our own, we're dead. And there's nothing we can do to bring ourselves back to life. But the two most important words in the Bible show up in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But God, in the fullness and the riches of his grace and his love and his mercy, he actually chose to unzip the body bag and pull his enemies out of it and bring them back to life. Why would God raise his enemies who hated him and loved their sin? Why would he bring us back to life? Because he's so full of love and grace and mercy, and he longs to forgive us. That's nothing we could do. It's a gift of God. And at the very end, I will quote uh, at the very end of this passage, it says right, that we are his workmanship. Verse 10, we are now his work. And put this in the context of as you work and God is calling your work life to proclaim and display the gospel, we have a place to stand. We have something to lean on that we are his work. And because we are his work, our work can tell people about him. For those of us who trust in Jesus, this is our history. This is our heritage. This is everything. This changes everything. God designed our lives to be lived in such a way that now the truth of our history and our heritage is put on display by the way that we live and by the way that we speak. We've been seeing this through the book of Ephesians in our, our marriage our singleness, our relationships to our parents and kids, right? And now in work, as we grow in Jesus, our work preaches Jesus. So answering this question now, what does God intend for our work? It's that your healing and transformation in Jesus would proclaim to the world where they can find healing and transformation, okay? Let's look at verse five of our text Bond servants, workers, those entrusted with work, important work, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Obedience to our earthly authorities should imitate our obedience to our heavenly authority. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. So naturally, we need to pause and, and consider, self-reflect. Am I in submission to Christ as my heavenly authority? 
have I surrendered every aspect of my life to him. I can't really obey my earthly master until I really obey my heavenly master. Have I followed the Mark 8, 34 command? If you're, when Jesus says to anyone who would listen, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to pick up your cross and you have to follow me. And so here we see this. Paul is reiterating this, this command, this call. Obey as you obey Christ. So do we. And hopefully... We are all um, understanding enough of who Jesus is to where maybe at least sometimes we can remind ourselves, wait a second, Jesus isn't holding anything against me. My answer to that can be no, and I'm okay. Because when we confess to him, Jesus, my life is not completely surrendered to you. When we confess that and we admit that, and we come to him with it, then we have the the chance to then surrender our lives to him. We can't bring that answer to him and then keep it. We can't say no, and I like it that way. That's not surrendering your life. But when we confess, when we deny ourselves and we give that up and we say, Jesus, I'm not in ultimate obedience to you. I haven't given you everything. Would you help me? So is verse 5 telling us to obey our earthly masters, as if they're God? No. We get a little clarity from verses 6 and 7. Not by the way of eye service, or um, when I was in high school and I worked um, in a golf shop uh, and I was in the back, when the door was closed, what do you think I was doing when I was 17 years old and my boss didn't have his eyes on me? I was sitting down. (laughs) not doing what I really could have and should have been doing. Um, That's, and then when the door opens and the boss comes in, I'm, oh, I'm going to get to work and I'm going to pretend like I'm washing these clubs, right? That's eye service. I'm just going to work when it's convenient for me. And then people pleasing, another term for this is fear of man, right? When, When we only work to make other people happy, to stay on their good side. So, Verses 6 and 7, not don't work by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, as slaves to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Verse 6 clarifies that we're to obey our earthly masters, like verse 5 says, but fear and trust and depend on God. So who we're obeying in our earthly masters, they do not have ultimate authority over us. um, I I don't know that I can clarify this more than what it clarifies itself already just by me explaining it. So I'm going to illustrate it. Um, In 1750, Jonathan Edwards, widely known as one of the greatest American preachers, the leader of the first great awakening in America, an incredible man, faithful to Jesus, served the church, served Christ well. In 1750, he was fired from his church. It was a congregationalist church, and so the whole church eventually um, led a coup and voted to, to fire him. And all of their reasons 
were not biblical disqualifications. One of the reasons that he was fired was because he was saying, guys, this structure of church authority is not biblical. And they didn't like that. Now, what do you think Jonathan Edwards was tempted with in that moment? And all the moments after that, when he would say, guys, this is not biblical. And he would show them scripture. He was tempted to work by way of eye service as a people pleaser to make them happy and say, okay, I just don't want to be fired. So I'm going to let you have your thing. Now, he continued to push against them and, and bring them the scripture and lead them to the truth. And what this did was eventually it led to his firing in 1750. He served this church for 25 years. Imagine your kids. You have the same kids for 25 years, your students. That'd be a little bit weird, but just imagine. <laughs> you would grow such a bond with them, teaching them, right? And disciplining them, teaching them what's right and what's wrong. And then they're like, wait, no, we actually don't want you to be our teacher anymore. We, we don't want you to be our pastor anymore. We don't like that you're teaching us and that you're leading us. 90% of that church voted for Jonathan Edwards to be out. So if you put yourself in his position, as an employee, as a worker, maybe you're even a manager, a boss, a business owner, you put yourself in that position, imagine the stress, imagine the sorrow. There was another local pastor present, so the, his trial was a week long. He came every day for a week and sat before his church listening to their false accusations against him. And every day in his trial, there was another local pastor, Reverend David Hall, who was present and who was watching Edwards. And on the day of the congregational vote, he wrote in his journal in 1750 in July, he wrote this. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God, whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies, and whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life. He was like a man of God, whose happiness, whose inward peace and joy was out of the reach of his enemies and his accusers. What does it take for us to live like that in the workplace? What does it take for us to have that, that holy resolve when it feels like our work environment is just coming at us 24-7? Edwards was so content in Christ, so trusting in Jesus. He was not obedient to his earthly masters because he saw them as good. He was obedient to his earthly masters and submitted to being fired, but with joy because he trusted that Jesus is good. This is doing the will of God from the heart. This is the hope that we have of resolute joy when our trust and dependence is on Jesus. What a compelling gospel that preach. What a compelling gospel to the watching world who's wondering, why is this church firing their pastor? 
And here he is so content in Christ. Let's move on to verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Um, the Lord has brought me back multiple times to the, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. And as I've read it, as I've reread it, and I've re-reread it, I just get stuck in this self-reflection um, that I believe the Holy Spirit is leading me into. And I ask myself a, a lot of questions. Do I forgive as I've been forgiven? Right? This is the story of, of the man who was, um, he owed, what is it, like 200 lifetimes of salary in monetary debt. And li lifetimes, not years, an immeasurable debt. And he came before the king and he pleaded to be forgiven and the king said, I'll forgive you. But then he goes and chokes out his servant for a couple hundred dollars. Was that man transformed by the mercy of the king? Absolutely not. And so Jesus tells this parable to show us that when we're given mercy and, and it really sinks deep into our soul and we realize that we've received immeasurable mercy far greater than the debt we owed, it changes us and it makes us merciful. And so I'm sitting here remembering this um, parable confronting my uh, lack of mercy in my hot anger, confronting my unwillingness to forgive at times. And Jesus just gently, softly, quietly, like a whisper, give the mercy you've been given. Forgive as you've forget, been forgiven. Love and serve as I have loved and served you. It's, it's not a transactional, if you obey me, then I'll be nice to you. It's, I've already given you. We already read in Ephesians 2, we've been given the riches of God's grace. It's already been poured out on us, lavished on us. And if we don't give it back, if we don't hand it out freely from our abundance, we never received it in the first place. And so what this causes me to do in my own formation, as I grow, as I pursue Christ, what I, it, it leads me to pray constantly with my eyes open as I'm going about my day. God, make me merciful like you've been merciful to me because I don't have it in me. Let me forgive as I've been forgiven because I don't want to forgive. You know, when you forgive... Even little things like a, a child's disobedience or um, someone harming you at work, when you forgive, what you are doing in that moment is taking on the pain of their injustice to you and not requiring anything due to them. So not only do you absorb the pain of the harmful activity, you also absorb the pain of having to forgive them. And this should put in perspective 
how heavy and how weighty and how big the cross really is. That when Jesus forgave us in his death, not only did he absorb the blow of us putting him on a cross, he also absorbed the blow of not having justice for the wrongdoers. Mercy comes at a cost, and it comes at the cost of the one who gives mercy. Are we willing to recognize that Jesus has paid that cost? So any amount that we would pay in forgiveness is minimal. It pales in comparison to how we've been forgiven. Verse 9 um, verse 9 addresses masters, and, and we notice there's a lot fewer commands because Paul kind of just hits retweet. He, he like, copy and paste, I'm going to put this in at masters. What I said to these guys, I'm going to say to you too. He says, masters, do the same to them. Oh, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. So what Paul's saying here is uh, not only is he saying, hey, everything I just said there, copy and paste that to you, but also, you're not the master anymore. There's no capital M to your job title. You're a bondservant to Christ. When um, Jesus' mother Mary finds out that she has uh, conceived Jesus, the Savior of the world, one of the lines in that, that song prayer that she just that pours out of her in Luke 1 He says, he humbles, she's talking about the Father, he humbles the exalted, and he exalts the humble. So when we see there's no partiality, it it means that Jesus takes those people in a high place, these masters, he says, hey, I'm in authority over you. And then when he takes the servants who are lowly and feel undignified, he says, hey, I'm your master. I'm a better master. And so now we all exist on the same playing field. There's no partiality. There's no favorites. This is important because these masters, they were free, they were rich, and they had power over people. It was easy and natural for them to believe that they would receive an extra measure of grace. And Jesus, uh, excuse me, the Holy Spirit, through the words and the handwriting of Paul, says that's not true. We all receive lavished grace upon grace. So the Holy Spirit's command to those of you who are entrusted to people is the same as those who are entrusted to work, but from a a little bit of a different perspective. It's to lay down your authority as the ultimate authority. When he says, um, stop your threatening, what he's saying is, You don't get to make people afraid of you now. Because you as a Christian leader now point to a greater fear in the Lord. That as you trust and depend on Jesus, you are leading your people to trust and depend on Jesus. As we grow in Jesus, our work preaches Jesus. Right? Um, There's a risk in reading these commands. There's a risk in saying, hey, you need to obey Um, don't just people please, don't just be at work uh, when you're being watched, be at work always. Uh, There's a risk in reading through this and now making a standard of Christian work behavior to say, okay, here's 
what we need to do. Some of, some of you may come on Sunday mornings waiting for a sermon, that, and you're just kind of thinking, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me the Christian thing to do, that's what I'll do. If you tell me how to behave, I'll behave that way. How long does that last? Paul David Tripp says that that's like stapling fresh fruit on a dead tree. We cannot change our hearts and our motivation. If you look at the three commands in these five verses, each command is attached to the qualification of a heart change. Obey from a sincere heart. Do the will of God from the heart. And then to the masters, he actually says, you're changing your position. You are no longer a master, but you are a slave. And that requires a heart change. I also want to point out that in these five verses, Jesus is referenced five times, once in every verse. So when we're making these connections between our hearts need to be changed, how can they be made changed but through Jesus? We're remembering the context of the, of the letter of the Ephesians, that it's the clarity of the gospel that transforms every part of our lives. We cannot behave well enough. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Your pastor needs Jesus. In order for us to truly obey Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, our hearts must be changed by the gospel. Our first and greatest work is to receive from Jesus our own transformation. Our first and greatest work is to receive from Jesus our own transformation. As we grow in Jesus, our work preaches Jesus. Can I pray for you?